Welcome to Seek Justice, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the nuances of criminal justice. Good morning, Dennis. Oh, good morning, Eric. So today I wanted to talk to you about a, uh, an article I saw recently uh, about right after the, the horrible mass shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand, um, and the, 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 the prime minister coming in really swiftly and doing uh, a pretty good job in the eyes of, of liberals of um, both refusing to name the shooter and also uh, cracking down on, on gun laws. Um, and, but the, the, what the article was discussing was they made this, this law that simply uh, knowingly possessing the shooter's manifesto, which is what we call these things now, uh, can carry up to a 10-year prison sentence, and distributing it to others can be up to 14 years in prison. And as an American, that strikes me as just a horrible uh, you know, freedom of speech attack. But on the other hand, I'm aware that uh, in post-World War II Germany, when they outlawed displaying Nazi propaganda or Nazi flags or anything, that really was pretty efficient at making that all go away. So I was wondering what your what your opinions are on this and about freedom of speech and, in general, censor censorship like this. Well, you know, whenever there's an event like this, politicians react as they must, and you know, I think they're most politicians are doing a pretty good job recognizing that it's a time for the outpouring of sympathy and concern, and then they immediately move into policy issues. And this is where we often get into this knee-jerk reaction type stuff where it makes a good soundbite and gets you the attention that you need and makes people feel like you're doing something. But it's a whole nother issue as to whether or not that's something you're doing is going to have any effect. Um, And, you know, the first question is, what do they care? And the answer may be that some politicians do care that whatever that soundbite is is going to make some sense, but more often than not, I'm afraid they don't care because the soundbite is the end game. Right. You know, it's it's when you're calling for, you know, in in the U.S., you're calling for tightening up our drug laws, and depending on what you say, that's going to be taken more or less seriously. If what you say is that we want to uh, ban uh, handguns. Well, that won't be taken very seriously because it's impossible to imagine with the power of the the NRA and the history of gun laws. If you say you want to renew uh, the call for mental health checks for all weapons or outlaw AK-47s or magazines that carry a certain high number of volume of of bullets or whatever, then that's more credible. But it may not get you the soundbite you want. And so I think in the case of New Zealand, we have a little bit of both there. I, I I don't know how you could police the ownership of a written document, and if you did possess it, how that would somehow put you into a felonious uh, position simply because you own it. I don't know the, uh, you know, the constitutional uh, press protections in in New Zealand per se. I imagine they're similar to here. So I think that's kind of a non-starter. Distributing it, I think, could be grounds for conspiracy, uh, depending on what is said, uh, but it, it kind of all depends. Uh, it reminds me. It reminds me a little bit of the attempts to police uh, pirating of of movies and music and stuff, yeah. Napster and whatnot. Where it's so easy to make a copy of a digital file now that, and you, it's just impossible to try and to try and police. So, again, I think it might be one of these cases of let's make a law that's really almost totally unenforceable just to make it look like we're doing something. Well, and the, what's always a little strange to me is that you don't have to do one or the other. You can do both. I mean, the, the, the fact is, is that so many of these mass shootings are done by people who have recognizable mental health issues and have had uh, activities or events that have happened in their life that would have perhaps given us you know, some insight into what the future could hold. Uh, but that type of response to get at the the issues of you know who's mentally ill, who's not mentally ill, and what is their what is our responsibility to make sure that that mental illness is known before they purchase weapons, or how do we investigate what's happening at grade school or high school levels with kids that are exhibiting antisocial uh, behavior and or are basically talking you know about uh, these types of violent events? That's not very sexy. That's not very attractive. That's a longer term issue, and of course. 
politicians and the political cycle are driven, you know, as we've discussed so much, exactly. such a rapidity, such a, a quick uh, revolution that th they want quicker solutions that get them better press so that they can raise money. That's not simply the case. There's a lot of politicians, obviously, that are more states people, statesmen who want to do something and, and they can do the, the quick call to arms that would get the flash that they want, but at the same time, get in a little deeper Actually follow uh, through. to what what the causes and effects are and not do another study. We already know the studies have shown again and again. So, you know, it's just kind of curious. It often seems to me to be the case that we've got a lot wrong with the justice system and a lot of advocates and activists seem to be oftentimes much more concerned about making the press and getting the, you know, the, the, the big meeting with the press there than they are digging into the weeds and doing the hard work of actually attacking some of the issues that are at the base cause of why we have such rampant crime and why we have such rampant violence. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 it's an odd situation. We've got to do both, but uh, you know, there's not a lot of evidence that there's a lot of groups that are interested in hunkering down and really getting in and doing the work. I mean, the ACLU is, they're organized uh, and they raise their dollars and they're organized around both campaigns uh, to uh, increase public awareness about issues, but also boots on the ground in the legal arena doing stuff, fighting stuff, filing briefs, et cetera, they're very operational. And I think a lot of other places, you know, could could can learn from that. You know, one of the issues that, that we've attacked as best we can over the years is the, the growing and uh, epidemic proportions of racial disparity in the system, mm -hmm. which is another issue that we know a lot about and we kind of know what causes it, we know what to do about it. But when we create uh, opportunities for folks to fight it, we don't get a lot of uh, action. Well, can you uh, can you almost, can you explain to me what what causes it? Well, I so mean, I'm sure there's a million different little. Well, is that, that's that's variables. actually the point. Is there is a million different things? I mean, we've talked about the fact that the justice system is not really a system; mm -hmm. it's a bunch of small components of a, a larger system that are each independent of each other but interrelate. So you have a, a policing system and a court system and a pretrial detention system in the jails and a sentencing system and then a post-release jail system, probation system, prison system and a parole system. Those are all systems characterized by having rules, regulations, guidelines and somebody's in charge. But overarching over all of that, nobody's really in charge. And unless one subsystem butts up against another, they really don't work with each other all that closely. So what we know about disparity in the justice system, and this is work done by the Sentencing Project out of Washington, D.C. Uh, Mark Maurer, one of the preeminent uh, scholars on this issue, has written a lot of uh, books and articles about reducing racial disparity. We developed, under the auspices of the Sentencing Project, a booklet on how to reduce racial disparities. And first we uh, created... A, a way to measure racial disparity using something called the Racial Disparity Index, where we looked at the numbers and percentages of people of all races and ethnicities that uh, could be uh, caught up in the system, looked at their relative uh, strength of numbers in the population compared to the strength of their numbers in the system and came up with a disparity index. Right. It's off by this much, it's off by that much. And what we found, um, and I, I won't say it was surprising, but it was kind of unpredicted, is that we see racial disparity at every part of the justice system. And in the locations where we looked, we didn't see one part any more responsible than another part. Hmm. In, in fact, they were all somewhat equally and smally or shortly responsible. But when you added it all up and every step of the system is more racially disparate, by the time you get to the end game, which is state imprisonment, you end up with disparity that's way, way out of whack. And it isn't the police that do more or the courts that do more. They each do some. Right. And, and that so, and that makes it that makes it so much harder to motivate. Like if, if everyone is a little bit guilty, then every, everyone sort of has an excuse of, well, well, they're well, look over there. They're doing it badly, too. Like all the all the senators stabbing Julius Caesar. They're all since right. all, they're all equally to blame. None of them is really going to get in trouble because it's hard to put point the point to blame. Well, uh, yes, I it, I think you're right. There, there's not a there's not a. Uh, intrinsically higher motivation on any one part of the system to change because they're more responsible, but nor is there a clamor right. from other parts of the system for one system to change. And instead it's like, oh, well, we're all doing it. None of us are doing it all that poorly. But on the other hand, none, none of us are more responsible. Therefore, there's not going to be a clamor for those that are more on the positive side. And yet, you know, they can kind of join forces and say, look, we're all equally responsible. But, but that, that, 
I'm not sure which is the bigger challenge. I think the biggest challenge is regardless of what their motivation is to get them interested. You know, we we when we we did a study at, also at the sentencing project of five states that <clears throat> reduced their prison populations by double digits, and those changes have been maintained under the paper five states that uh, decarcerated their population. Yeah, and discovered that not a one of them, not a one of the five, actually went after the issue of racial disparity in a specific way when they were attacking these reforms, hmm. which were done in a very public, systematic way with governors and formal MOUs and all sorts of deliberate town hall meetings and press releases and reports. Nobody in there did they say at the beginning of it, we want to attack racial disparity. This is what we're going to do about it. Now, the fact is that each of them did have an impact on reducing racial disparity, but only because racial disparity was in such evidence that if you're going to reduce the prison population, then you're un you're going to undo some of that naturally. Right. And because it's so out of whack, because you're helping uh, to reduce the number of people in prison or the length of stay or the number of people that get released, you will have an inordinate impact on persons of color because they're in the system more frequently. But right. it was just a matter of, of, of math. It wasn't a matter of, of going after it. And it's kind of odd that with all the press and all the books and all the stuff that's been written and, you know, you know, uh, Michelle Alexander and the new Jim Crow and all these great mm -hmm. books and attention on the matter, et cetera, and with Black Lives Matter, that you'd have at least a couple of jurisdictions that would say, hey, we want to do something about it. And thanks for developing this little manuscript that's guidelines on how to reverse in each stage of the system that level of disparity that exists in that part of the system so that the end game of the over-representation in the prison system changes. There's not been a call for that, and maybe we could do more to, to put those opportunities out there and maybe more of a formal uh, call. All right, so what are some examples of things that can be done that have that have borne fruit in, in the past? So in each agency in, this, in the system, they have policies, procedures, and they also have uh, funding plans or resource allocation plans. And one of the things that you've got to do if you want to reduce racial disparities, number one, at each point of the system, understand what degree of disparity you have, mm -hmm. and then brainstorm as to what is driving that disparity. So looking at police, which happens first, that very likely is going to be with the allocation of resources in uh, African-American neighborhoods. Yeah. Well, the, the questions are, well, what causes that? Well, the facts are, that one of the reasons that we have a lot of police presence in African-American neighborhoods is because the African-Americans who live there want a police presence. Yeah, you mentioned that last time, yeah. You know, just like all of us, if there's stuff going on that we're unclear about happening out on the streets, we want more police there. We want to feel safer. And so it's not uh, driven by the police saying, well, we're going to, you know, be uh, over rambunctious in African-American neighborhoods just because we want to watch those people. Right. That's generally not where that stems from. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that in those neighborhoods, which can be defined rather than racial terms, defined on economic terms, that oftentimes if they're in poorer neighborhoods, there is more crime. Right. And one of the reasons there's more crime is because crime is committed by people who oftentimes have no means, they're, they're, they're desperate and mm -hmm. they break the law. And so that helps drive it too. So in the police, being aware of what is causing those resources to be over allocated, to recognize the degree to which when that uh, resourcing happens, to what degree are you having any racial disparate uh, impact on informal stops that result in informal action versus formal action, meaning, hey, I stop you on the street, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. uh, it's after two o'clock, there's a curfew in a particular neighborhood at 1.30, what do you do? Do you take the guy in? Do you give him a warning and send him home? Well, when you do the informal, do you do that more frequently with people of color or not? Right. You, you've got to you've got to track stuff if you want it to matter. If, if, if racial disparity matters and you've got to track it. So you do that in police forces and you also educate then what you find. And, and, and so you can you can talk about that. It may be, in fact, that in a in a police uh, system that the representation, which may be more zealous in African-American neighborhoods, is appropriate. And at the end of the day, that's what the citizens want. That's what crime good crime fighting dictates. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, you may say, well, we're going to we're going to live with a small level of disparity here or it's just 
part of what happens here, but let's move on to the next system. What happens when the prosecutors get hold of the cases? What are their decisions? Is it racially disparate when they say, well, we're going to not prosecute or we're all going to prosecute? Are we going to plea bargain or we're not going to plea bargain? And, and what you do in each part of the system, you measure the level of disparity, you determine what the uh, potential sources of that disparity are, you look at the policies, procedures, and resource allocations that drive that disparity, and then you decide on a case-by-case -case basis whether you're going to do something about it or not. Right. It involves education and awareness. Just because people become aware of an issue and they're asked to start counting something, you'll see dramatic changes. People want to do well in the system. They don't want to be racially disparate, right. but they've, they've got to be a, 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 it's got to be apparent to them as to what they're doing and, and what they could be doing to, to address it. Yeah, and again, once you start measuring something, uh, things can get out of whack. Like, uh, I heard one story about where in, um, I guess it was New York City, some some guy came and said, all right, we're going to reform the, uh, the, the, the policing using using data and we're going to take all these numbers and we're going to do all this and it what what it resulted in were were like at at first it was really informative and they made some good decisions but then it sort of went off the rails and it turned into this quota system where each precinct needed to get so many arrests per um per month or whatever to show that they were doing their jobs well and it led to a whole bunch of injustice by by like you have to be careful how much you measure and how you act on what you measure i yeah well, you've got to be clear at the beginning of any process, and it doesn't matter whether you're in the justice system or any system. Sure. What is the end game? I mean, what is it that you're you're setting out to do? And when you know that and you lay that out, you have goals to reduce, in this case, racial disparity, and then you have different objectives. And those objectives, time-driven, may be to run through a typical plan of action, assess to the degree of disparity, uh, brainstorm with different uh, parts of the community what you're finding, uh, come up with ideas as to what to do about it, uh, brainstorm on potential unintended consequences mm -hmm. and what, what could happen that we don't expect here and what to do about it. You know, this, this whole point that you've made here around unintended consequences, that has to be part of a deliberate process at the beginning of that, that initiative to make sure that you're clear about it. You know, we, we, you may have heard about a, a ban the box scenario where there's a push for employment applications not to have a box on them that, that you check right. if you've ever been convicted of a felony. So you ban the box. And the point of that is, is don't check that box because when you do, anybody that's got that box checked goes on the stack. We're not going to interview. And then the stack of you're going to interview don't have the boxes. Take that off and then wait till the interview process to, to ask, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the unintended consequence of that is that because they don't know they get the employers don't know. They get nervous about not knowing because they are very concerned mm -hmm. about criminal activity in the workplace and related issues of, of uh, poor uh, soft skills uh, from you know drug use, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they want to know. So what do they do? They 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 assume that uh, African Americans have got more likelihood of having criminal activity, so they interview <clears throat> fewer African Americans. Right. Unintended consequence. But, you, you know, you got to be careful of what the fix is, you know, and you got to really think it through. And that's one of the reasons why when you're doing this work, you've got to engage the people that are affected by it. Mm -hmm. if, if, you know, it's, it's like in a bureaucracy of your Department of Corrections and you've got a bunch of people who work in central office and they're going to brainstorm about what to do about a particular issue that's, you know, some difficulty on the streets that affects parole caseloads. Well, they better have a, a parole officers on their on their team of people that are looking at it. And they ought at some point take what they're going to do with that issue and put it in front of their key stakeholders, including groups that are concerned about crime, neighborhood watch, uh, you know, public defenders offices, prosecutors, victims of crime and former prisoners. Mm -hmm. they're, 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 it's not, it, and, and it's have not a all, secret. And have all these, all these stakeholders, you know, try and poke holes in their plan about, well, you're not considering this other thing, but, uh, because that, I mean, the whole point of unintended consequences is a lot of them are things you didn't know you needed to worry about, which is, and, you know. And it doesn't have to take up a lot of time. And people will say, well, it's quicker to do it this way. Well, let me tell you, if a Department of Corrections does, and, and, and this is an example, you're going to create a, a experimental research design approach to measuring whether a particular criminal justice initiative works or not, meaning you're going to use human subjects and you're going to look at a population of, of prisoners 
that may have a moderate to high risk of failing upon release, and you're going to put together a reentry program for them, but you're going to say, every other one of you isn't eligible because we're doing a research project. And we're going to track those of you who are in the treatment group who get the services against those who are in the control group and you don't get any services. And we're going to go ahead and do that. Well, if you're going to design that, you need to design that with the people that are affected, the people that are providing the services, the prisoners, that, uh, at least representative of prisoners, so that you've got that viewpoint, prisoners' families, so they understand. Yeah. You, you know, politicians, and it, you don't, you can have one meeting, you can have a series of groups. You can do one after another. You can put them in the room, but you got to say to them, this is what we're going to do because we don't want to get sued. And we have a lot of questions and we don't want unintended consequences. So if I'm a service provider, I say, well, wait a minute. The guy that you say while he's in prison, you're not going to get reentry. So you're not going to go to the the reentry pre-release center. You're not going to get that, right? And the DOCC, yeah, we're not going to get him. Well, he's going to get out of prison anyway, right? Yes. If he comes to my program, I'm going to give him the same services I would have given him if I talked to him before release. Right. How does that affect your outcome? Yeah, that's the problem with with uh, with doing studies like this with real people in you know, real people's lives. Like, no one wants to be the one getting the placebo uh, in the in the clinical trial. Everyone wants whatever the the, the treatment is. So, uh, so dividing people up and telling them, look, we're not we have we have this thing that we think is gonna is gonna help people like you, but we're not gonna give it to you. Well, and, and, and part of part, part of the, this placebo thing that you mentioned here is a good example. One of the reasons that those activities only take place as one of the last series of tests is because it is so serious. By the time you get to the point where you're using human subjects, you have to be very proud of your theory or your approach. Right. And in fact, that's the mantra of experimental research designers to say, you know, we, we, we won't measure until we're proud of our model, meaning you think you've got a nail. So in the case of prisoner reentry and in the state, you know, I'm working uh, now, I'm in uh, Louisiana as we speak, they did design at the state level this experimental research design, but they didn't so far run it past their stakeholder groups, which is legitimate protocol 101 right. for the design of these human subjects. Uh, experimental research design because people will be denied services. Are we proud of the model? Well, no, it hasn't even been proven yet. There's been no proof of concept, but in an improved reentry system, as we've talked, it isn't just about improved policy and procedure and grabbing hold of the men and women prior to release and making certain that you know what services they need and do the proper matching prior to release. It's also obviously to make sure there's enough services to go around because the flow of people getting out of prison is enormous. There's, you know, in, in, in each parish where I'm in now in the southeast Louisiana, three of the major parishes here, they each get between 1,000 and 1,500 releases a year. Wow. So you're looking at 300 people a month in a region. You better be clear about what you're doing. And if you're going to do an experimental research design, how big is it? And what do you do with all those people that you're denying services to? But you got to make sure that it's designed well. And if it isn't with proper uh, input, you know, very well thought through, it'll fall flat on its face. The, the, the justice system is full of experiments that have gone awry that work well when they were small, but they didn't work well when they were driven bigger. Right. For, you know, I can, I can go on and on about the reasons for that, but it's all about this bottom line of being thoughtful and planful. Think about what you're doing. It's got to be written down. It's got to be designed. It's got to be vetted. Right. And with the stakeholders who are most affected by it, if you don't do that, you will be sued. You will fail. And then if you fail, people will say, well, we tried that experiment. It didn't work. They don't care that the research design was flawed. Even the worst research studies around get a lot of press. The press doesn't read the opening that says we didn't find any statistically relevant because our sample was too small. They're going to read the next paragraph that says, but that doesn't stop me for drawing conclusions because I do, after all, want to publish this freaking paper. Right. And even though it's statistically insignificant with poor methodology, it gets as much press as those do that don't. Yeah. Going back to um, to racial disparity, I was reading the other day, there's a group in at Wake Forest University in North Carolina called the Jury Sunshine Project. And uh, they've been doing some research into how selecting jurors can be defined, um, how, because you're you're not allowed to, um, to to strike a juror by by race. But on the other hand, you know, it's, they're standing in front of you and you have that data point in, you know, you can you can see. 
anyway, they did this this pretty uh, impressive research, and they came up with um, with nine different uh, findings that I wanted to share with you a little bit. Um, first of all, they they just they found that um, women and men serve on felony trial juries at about the same rate, so that's pretty you know it aligns with the population. Uh, the next one is uh, prosecutors remove twice as many potential black jurors at trial as white jurors. Uh, 20% of available black jurors compared with 10% of available white jurors. The prosecutors know that white jurors are more likely to to, to, um, to find someone guilty than, than black jurors. And part of that is, I think, because of, uh, I don't know, just how the system treats both of those, both of those uh, races. And you're, if the system treats you poorly, then you're going to be sort of wary of the system and maybe not go follow along with the with the guilty verdict juries with more black males tend to acquit the defendant more often uh, all other things being equal and juries with white males tend to convict more more than than um well and you know to to your to your point your first point is really i would say that it's a matter of trust you either right if you trust the system yeah the more you trust the system the more likely you are to trust the arrest was sound the conviction was sound the, the history of, of the offender's history, the purported offender's history of sound, et cetera, um, and the more likely you're to trust the judgment that is that is used because the, the, the justice system is driven by discretion. Right. Discretion. So many decisions are made along along the path that if you trust that the people who are making them are competent, then you're more likely to say, "All right, well, I'll I'll vote to I'll uh, I'll vote to convict this guy because I'm sure the system will give him a fair uh, sentence or whatever." Yeah. Whereas if you're if you're not uh, if you're more wary of the system, then you're more likely to say, "Well, the system's right. not going to help this anywhere." So anyway, I found that I found that interesting. And people trust systems where the people running their systems look more like them. Of course. So if you're a white male working in, you know, if you're a juror, you're looking around and you're seeing that, yeah, this is a system driven by white men. So right. yeah, they like me. They're like me. All the lawyers are white and the judges are white. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not, that's not the case uh, to a large degree with, with African-Americans or other people of color, Hispanics, especially. So, you know, that's all part of it. The part of the, the point of the process then when you, the, of the reform process, be it reforms on improving, um, you know, racial disparity, improving uh, the application of uh, uh, better uh, services along the way, maybe even, you know, bail reform, jury selection reform, et cetera, is to start with the analysis and then the education and put people in the same room together that have got some power and authority to change it. You've got to have high level um, support. That's why we, we, we love to, to, to see governors step out on justice reform justice reform is generally driven at the state level. We love to see governors drive it, but at the same time, if governors are only driving it and the communities aren't engaged, it'll be lopsided and it won't be sustainable. Right. So there's a lot of elements that go into developing an initiative that you have, a group of people has an outcome they want in mind. Why are we joining together? What are we, what are we infuriated about? What is it that want to see operationally concretely and with that in mind how do we build backwards to be able to get there all, all along the way understanding that what we want to build if we want it to be successful it has to be built by the people that are affected by it right if you want something to if you want people to own something ask them to help you build it you know don't don't build it over there don't let you know some central office people in a DOC build something, then present it and ask people to buy in. You can do some of that, but you've got to vet it. You've got to include them. And it's, it's the case with all of this reform stuff. <clears throat> and a lot of people don't want to do that. Even activists and advocates are often don't want to uh, bring people into the fold. Uh, it, it, it is often the case, it seems to me, that they would rather complain loudly again and again and again about it. And then when it comes time to Sit behind closed doors and roll your sleeves up and start to attack the issue in mm -hmm. a in a you know a, a disciplined way. People want to continue to tell their stories and they want to continue to complain about the system and and that's what they do mostly and that's what they do well and they default to it and it's very hard to work your way out of this stuff and it's also hard to get them to want the people that they feel are responsible for making the mistakes in the room with them. Hmm. That's uncomfortable. Yeah, and you've got to have the you. It doesn't do you any good if you're going to try to change the system from the outside and don't have any process to include the people that are responsible and run the resources. You've got to have them in the room. 
it's it's not easy yeah and especially with like a lot of this is self-reinforcing like for example if if the prosecutors know that white males are more likely to 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 convict well i mean it just makes strategy sense to to try and get more white males in the in the jury and same as with your with your ban the box thing where if you if you take away the box and then people assume that uh that african americans are more likely to have a felony in their past well that's given the data that's a reasonable assumption because they're more uh like it's it's they're overrepresented they're overrepresented so uh trying to break that that cycle of i it's it seems very difficult i don't well and in, in fact jury selection would be one of the toughest ones to try to figure out because the facts are the facts and the discretion that they have is is uh well documented Right. In terms of, you know, what they can do and what they can't do. And both uh, defense attorneys and prosecutors are, are are driven by the same set of circumstances. I mean, just as you're describing what prosecutors want, well, defense attorneys want the same thing. Right. The opposite. And so they're direction. looking for overrepresentation by African-American, African-American men. So one side is pushing one way, one side is pushing the other way. And as long as they're both, you know, pushing with equal footing. Uh, then one might say, well, they, it, it cancels out. they both have the same advantages and the same disadvantages. You know, it's like I was I was uh, having a, a, a beer the other day and these two guys were arguing who were shooting pool. And the one guy was saying how it wasn't fair because the light was out and it was too dark for him to be able to see. And the other guy said, it isn't any different for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's not an unfair disadvantage. That's a disadvantage we both share. Right. And they actually couldn't agree on it, which was <laughs> odd to me. But it's the same kind of thing that we see here. And so, you know, uh, the, the other thing is that that is a remarkable uh, part of this that, that I've discovered that I don't I still scratch my head about is that the people that are most affected by uh, racial disparity as well, if they're in positions of power, they may be reluctant to take this issue on. I remember uh, working in the uh, uh, Jennifer Granholm administration in, in Michigan, governor, and her uh, top criminal justice policy advisor for the state was an African-American woman. And I took this issue of racial disparity with her, to her, and said, why don't we promote this and work with uh, uh, criminal justice systems at the county level uh, who might be interested in this. We can get some technical assistance from a national group, the sentencing project, get some funding, and we can actually support the uh, rolling back of some of these racial disparate policies and resource allocations. She didn't want to touch it. She didn't want to touch it. She said, I don't want to put attention on issues of race here and make it, uh, it seemed to me, she was saying, make the point that African-Americans are overrepresented in the system because that looks bad for us. And I said, well, wait a minute. You are overrepresented in the system, and if you won't do anything about it, and somewhere in that same uh, time frame, I went to an African-American county commissioner in Detroit, Wayne County, mm -hmm. and brought it to his attention, and he was uh, very vocal and served as a leader in the Black Caucus there as well. He didn't want to touch it either. Wow. He so... didn't want to draw attention to it, and, I mean, what am I going to do as a, as a, as a, a white male— trying to promote these issues to high-ranking African-Americans who don't want to take it on because of the political optics of the reality of African-Americans running with an electorate that is predominantly white and what the white electorate feels about these issues. It's like, oh, my God. Man. Uh, so where, where and when can we attack then? Right, exactly. If, if I can't do it with y'all, what, you know— and I don't want to say that th those two examples represent the, the common view. They're just two examples I have in my experience. Yeah. If, you, if you're too scared to highlight a problem in, 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 your, in your own community and you want to wait for someone from outside to highlight the problem, because that, that looks even worse. I don't know. Well, or, if, or if, if, if you are concerned about the optics of it, then let's go behind the scenes. And it's, you know, what government does, of course, is transparent, uh, but you don't have to. Right. There's post there's, meetings. There's very transparent. And there's, to, right. Yeah, it doesn't have to be. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can post a meeting and not have a press release about it. Right. You can post a meeting and you can be more or less quiet about it. 
and you know, and then you know, public's always invited to this open meeting, Sunshine Acts, and all that. But you don't necessarily have to plan for public input until you've got some ideas of what you're going to do about it. The fact is that reducing racial disparity at every point in the system is some pretty boring stuff. It's, you know, it's policy and procedure, it's resource allocation, it's internal education, it's external education, it's a lot of analysis, it's a lot of tracking of information over time. It's not headline-grabbing stuff. And if you start to reduce the disparity, given that each part of the system is only responsible for a small part, but a definable part of that disparity, that means your gains are going to be small over time. And in order to have the impact you want, you have to have gains in each part of the system mm -hmm. over time. Well, name me a couple politicians that they want to join in a, you know, a, a, a four or five year plan when they've got in that time period two different sets of elections because they're House members and they're being elected every two years. Well, you've got to get people who are running to make commitments to dig into the deeper issues while they're running, because after they've won, they're not going to make those commitments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's been and a the, theme. You know, the promises that folks make while they're running are often run deeper. Right. Right. And, and and they're not, when they're made, the promises are made, they're not particularly consequential. Right. Because, you know, they're, they're, they're still running. But when you start to see the races tightening and you get down to a couple of different choices for governor and, you know, it's down to five points and three points, you know the governor is going to be one of two people or one of three people. Mm -hmm. That's a time to dig in deeper during the debates. Right. You know, when you want to get these issues out there and you want to promote written documentation of people's responses. You have to ask questions that are thoughtful and expect answers, and then you publish those answers. So criminal justice reform has got to start way, way, way ahead of the game, particularly at the state level with governors. Well, and fixing racial disparity, the like, how would you define the, the end goal of that? Because you don't, I don't think necessarily you're ever going to achieve having the same uh, demographics in prison that you have out of prison, the you know, uh, because some because of so many other things about society, uh, you're because people of different races are have historically been more or less wealthy. You, it's got to be really difficult to, like what what you want. I guess what what you want is to make the system more fair and treat the races the same sure. through the uh, through the throughout the process. But if, if, if it happens that that, that uh, white people do more uh, convenience store robberies or something, uh, then you're gonna, you don't necessarily want to uh, put, more, put more people of other races in, in prison until, they, it, until the, the levels match up. Or I don't know, right. that's sort of a right. contrived example, but right. it, it's, about, it's about fairness, but. Yeah, so, so you, you, you want to create goals and objectives that are realistic. They have to be specific, measurable, achievable, et cetera. And you don't want to set those goals until you define the degree that the problem exists. We want to reduce racial disparity. We don't know by how much yet because we don't know how much it exists, but we're going to plug in a number. So when you discover, after you do the analysis, which doesn't take all that long, what degree of disparity do you see at each part of the system? And what degree of overall disparity do you see as a result of that? And you've got those numbers and you can set one year, two year, three year, five year goals to reduce that disparity by 10% or 15% uh, by the overall system by trying to reduce disparity in each part of the system by 10% or 15% or 20% or more. So you've got to have some idea of what the numbers are in the first place to set achievable goals. And then you measure that. You want to be able to say at the end of the day, we're succeeding. It's not as disparate as it once was. It is still too disparate, right. but it is less so. And when you list your accomplishments, you have both activities and you have performance outcomes, but you have to go about it in that very studied, disciplined way, right? Right. And you can then look at the proof and say, well, the system is a bit fairer now than what it was before, at least looking at this. And if you want then to um, put some color, uh, no pun intended, put some color behind that, you want to interview some folks that have been part of the process who can explain what they did differently, why the process was good, and what they understand now that they didn't understand. Right. You want to publicize that. You want to get people of all races. You can do public service announcements, but it's a long-term process. And, and so you create a, a, you know, a racial inequality disparate initiative uh, project that is expected to go on for, for a long time. 
and, 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 and that's the way you do that. And you can be very specific. It's not hard. It's only hard in the general sense when you're using d difficult to define terms like fairness. Right. Well, I, how do we know there is less unfairness? Well, we see that the racial disparity that exists at every point in the system is a little better. Right. So you've, you've got to have an interaction between your activism, uh, a recognition of, the, of a definition of the problem so that you can define, you know, specific measurable, achievable objectives against those real numbers. Do you find, uh, as my assumption without looking into it, uh, is that uh, the Democratic Party is more concerned about racial dis disparity than the Republican Party, for example? Uh, is that, do you find that, that you can draw correlations between uh, what party a politician is a member of? No, and... not, 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 not very specifically. In, in, the, in, in my career, uh, I've worked for both Republican and Democrat governors, uh, mm -hmm. different administrations, and I got more accomplished or just as much accomplished with the Republicans as I did the Democrats. The, the, the Democrats, on the one hand, certainly have more liberal leanings and are probably more concerned uh, generally speaking, about uh, social inequities and racial inequities in the justice system, they're more vocal about it. So you could measure that right. and see that you know if you did a, a, a review of you know uh, announcements and you know different events to focus on an issue, the Democrats would be more likely. Blah blah blah. But um, on the other hand, you you could look at so who's doing anything about it, right. and then I don't think you're going to see a whole whole lot of difference. I've had some remarkable uh, 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 collaborations with uh, Republicans. The Republican governor we had here for many years, John Engler, uh, he did more to advance criminal justice reform than the Democratic governor before him, Jim Blanchard, uh, partly because the Democrats were afraid of the issue. They're afraid they're going to be called soft on crime. Right. Where the Republicans, they don't have to worry about that. Nobody's going to be foolish enough to call John Engler soft on crime, not with his tough record, so he's willing to do it and attack the issue of, of, of too many people in prison, uh, mass incarceration, from a fiscal perspective. Exactly. They didn't want to spend the money. Right. And so while the Democrats could say that, they're going to be accused of being hug thugs <laughs> and soft on, on criminals where the Republicans would scoff at that. And so it, it's, not, it's not as clear-cut as it otherwise would be. The, huh. the, the fact is, if it's going to be successful, it's got to be bipartisan. Right. And, it's, and in order for it to be bipartisan, an initiative, if it's well thought out, is going to show what the pluses and minuses are for each party, or for that matter, for each stakeholder. Right, and you can you, you can know, sell it to the to the Republicans as reducing spending, and you can sell it to the Democrats as reducing racial disparity, and you can do both. You can kill both of those birds with the same stone. Well, and in, and in fact, use the same language throughout. Which one of the things that the Democrats have to learn is they have to learn how to lead. You well, know, yeah. and if you want to lead on an issue like this. You don't lean on this issue, lead on this issue by saying, I feel terrible about, you know, what happens to the children of unwed mothers. Right. And how they're disparately represented in the justice system. You may feel that way. And if you're talking to a group of social workers, go ahead. Right. But if you're going to lead with this issue, you got to talk about fiscal responsibility and efficiency. We're wasting taxpayers money. I'm sick and tired of people being treated in the criminal justice system in ways which are ineffective, and I'm sick and tired of being charged for it. We've yep. got to be smarter on this. So we're going to go at this issue. We're going to attack these issues at the policy level. We're going to do stuff that's more efficient, that saves us money. And by the way, by the way, as we do that, we're going to end up helping people too. <laughs> right. So you got to you got to you got to figure out how to lead. And and the the left and right for the most part, far left and far right. Viewpoints don't win elections. Centrists win elections. Well, you've got to be in the center. You've got to bring the center in. And to do that, you've got to have a centrist message. But when you have a centrist message, the tentacles of that centrist message is very likely to have right wing and left wing approaches at the end of those tentacles. Mm -hmm. You've got to be able to, to, to talk about that stuff in a way that finally the conservative hears, oh, well, that would be why I would like this. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with the liberal. But you've got to attack it from a centrist position. And, you know, the issue of racial disparity is, is one that's there, too. We should be fighting this because it's costing us so much damn money. Right. It, does, you so don't have to, it doesn't have to be about, about fairness. Uh, it can be about, about, about money. It can be about all these things. Right, yeah. And you just decide when you have talking points, what do you lead with? 
Right. Well, you don't lead with the thing that's far right or far left. You lead with the things that, that that's that's more in the center. You know, do we want fewer victims? Who who in the room <laughs> doesn't want fewer victims? Raise your hand. Who in the room would rather have people get out of prison without a plan right. as opposed to a plan? Raise your hand. Yeah. And if, 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 if you want fewer victims, if you want people with plans, you're in favor of improved prisoner reentry. Now, let me give you the details. Yeah. Also, raise your hand if you want to pay more taxes. Yeah. yeah. So raise your hand if, if, if you're okay with wasting taxpayer money. Right. You know, and, and that's how you bring people into the fold. You've got to bring them in, you know, if you can grab them in the first minute or two, then they'll give you another minute or two. And if you grab them a little deeper, then they'll give you another minute or two. But that's how you get people involved. You don't get people involved by saying, hey, I want to involve you in a five-year effort to reduce racial disparity one piece of the system at a time, and it's going to be really analytical and kind of boring. Are you interested? <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, I'll pass. Right. You know. How about being fed up with this stuff and, and, and wanting to do something to be create a, a, a more efficient justice system that's more cost effective and at the same time being able to reduce the inequities and disparities in the system? You know, that's that's what that's why a lot of the work, again, I keep getting back to this needs to be to to get politicians to be able to say the kinds of things that make sense when they're running instead of stupid things. Right. You know, it's like the back to your initial opening here today with uh, the New Zealand, you know. Uh, what is the first thing that comes out of a politician's mouth? Well, I'm going to make it against the law for you to even own this manifesto. Right. Uh, you know, big applause and whatnot. And it's like, well, that's great. You made the soundbite. But what, what, what do you, how are you going to do that? Right, exactly. How are you going to do that? I mean, if you wanted to announce part A, I'm going to do this. And then part B is that, you know, I'm, I'm gathering up all the research we know. We already have it on our website. We want you to weigh in on these five recommendations of what we can do to reduce this occurrence in the future, including mental, mandatory mental health checks for people that have got any history of mental uh, uh, illness uh, before they purchase a gun of any kind, et cetera. Move toward action. You can do the, the, the sound bitey, you know, kind of sexy thing, but have something behind it. In fact, you know, it's not bad advice to say, make sure you catch their attention, but then hit them with something that makes sense. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, because if you start off, if you start off with with some of the deeper policy stuff, again, like you like you just like the point you just made, that that stuff's boring. You got to start in with the uh, the sharp attack. of. Well, and, and, and frankly, the uh, a lot of the operational issues involved in improving uh, the justice system are very boring. Right. They're, they're very they're very much in the weeds. You know, uh, the Congress, you know, passed the uh, first step act after many years of, of debate and it being stopped in its tracks by the Senate uh, for many years. And uh, they got it together. Jared Kushner from the, the Trump administration, whose father uh, was imprisoned uh, for financial misdealings in New York City by prosecutor Chris Christie, by the way, which explains why when Chris Christie, when Trump actually won, that Jared Kushner made sure that Chris Christie's transition team was disbanded. Right. No love lost between those two families. But to his credit, uh, uh, Kushner did uh, help, you know, get this push. And his daddy did some time in prison. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it's 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 some mild improvements, but we'll take them. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's in the weeds. Yeah. And one of the things that they called for, which we've talked, touched on in previous uh, podcasts is uh, risk need assessment and the application of actuarial risk and need assessment technology to determine the degree of risk that a person poses post-release in the case of reentry and their so-called criminogenic needs, meaning to what degree do they engage in criminal thinking, antisocial behavior, et cetera, so that you know who you're dealing with prior to release and then you try to match them. Well, you really get in the weeds when you start digging into this stuff, and the Congress is having some hearings about it. Well, they're giving you five minutes to talk. Right. And they're plowing ground that's been plowed for decades. And there's going to be, you know, a mountain of, of, of documentation provided over these hearings. And they probably will not have furthered the public knowledge of this at all. No. But the degree that they're getting it. And so what are they going to do? Are they going to create a yet another new system of risk assessment? Are they going to take advantage of what's already there? And how are these things used? And are they racially disparate? And there's controversy. So when you start talking about this stuff, you just get deeper and deeper and deeper in the weeds. And you unpeel that onion. And before long, you're crying 
<laughs> weeping because of the, the detail. Who's going to follow that detail? Not a politician. No. So now you have the interaction between the legislative branches and the executive branches, but it's out of kilter. Hmm. So it's out of kilter partly because the legislative process is going to happen first, and it may have very little input from the executive branch. So that when a law is passed, the legislature has no idea how the executive is going to implement it. Right. And when you're in the weeds on justice issues, you put a piece of legislation in there that says you must create, design, and implement a new risk and needs assessment instrument that does blah, blah, and blah. Mm -hmm. Well, if you put that into law without any recognition of what that means, because let's say that you've uh, eliminated the option to use something that's already designed and built and ready to go off the shelf. Yeah, you haven't accomplished anything. You've cost years and years of, of, of design time and uh, very likely millions of dollars where you might be, be able to buy one of these instruments off the shelf. And there's many that exist that are perfectly good. The North Point's Compass, the uh, Ohio uh, Risk Assessment System, the ORAS, there's many. The LSIR, the Level of Service Inventory, these, these things are out there. They're ready to go. You right. can adapt them for your population. But no, we want to build our own. Why? Because we're different than everybody else. We in fill in the blanks. We in Louisiana, Montana, you name it. Right. We're different. We're different. Here. Right. Yeah, you're different except that you're the same as everybody else when it comes to thinking you're different and wanting to be different. And you're the same because you too are gonna spend years and you're gonna end up with an approach here that isn't any better than anybody else's and you've lost three or four years and a million bucks and here you are. Yep. Here you are where you might have been four years ago had you taken another another approach. Right. So all of this stuff, it's, it's complicated, you know, it's complicated. Next week on Seek Justice, we discuss causation and how we determine which policies work and which don't. It's difficult to show cause and effect when the causes of what might be happening are multifaceted. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've just heard, you can support us by telling a friend or sharing us on social media. All of our episodes can be found on our website, seekjustice.fm. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we can be reached at seekjusticefm at gmail.com or via our Twitter account, at seekjusticefm. See you next week.